Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, your audio guide to the workplace dealing with issues around management, leadership, and employment. Today, talking with Bob Rosen. Bob is the author of a book entitled The Catalyst, How You Can Become an Extraordinary Growth Leader. He uh, is a co-author with Gene Litka and uh, Robert Wiltbank. I had the pleasure of meeting Bob in an interview with his previous book, Just Enough Anxiety. I was captured by the title and engaged with him about the discussion about uh, of what uh, Just Enough Anxiety was all about. First of all, you're a, um, I noticed a clinical professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at George Washington University School of Medicine, although you are an, a PhD in psychology, um, but you're a clinical professor of psychiatry. That's right. Explain to people who may, not, may be confused a little bit about the difference between psychiatry and psychology, how one becomes a, a clinical professor of psychiatry. Well, psychiatry, the root is medical school. So you have an MD and then you have advanced degrees uh, in psychiatry. And I have a PhD in clinical psychology, but it really is one small toe in that role. Most of my two feet is spent in business as the chairman and CEO of Healthy Companies International, which is a, a consulting firm that advises CEOs and executive teams on building great companies. And we bring a human focus to business, uh, blending business strategy and managerial psychology to help companies get better. A lot of companies are in need of getting better these days for a variety of reasons. No, it's a real tough time. These are stressful I mean, times. Oh, the global recession is creating lots of insecurity and instability and fear. Uh, a lot of companies struggling economically, uh, layoffs, and, and lots of change and uncertainty for most people out there. In your business uh, life as the CEO of healthy companies, when you're marketing that Clearly, you uh, want people to get to there. Does that become a, um, a push away for people, for companies that are not healthy? Do they <laughs> think you're only, you go from make the good better and the better best, but if somebody's in trouble, a healthy company rings the wrong way? Well, actually, it's actually to a, it's a real benefit to us because it is an aspiration. Most people want to run and work in a healthy company, healthy broadly defined, uh, healthy management, healthy culture, healthy bottom line. Uh, and so health is really an organizing theme for a business. So no one really says that they don't want to be healthy. Um, however, most times we get organizations who are good and want to be better or those who are great that want to continue to raise the bar uh, on their performance. Uh, if you think, of, a if you think of, a, of an organization as having four strategic agendas, you have the finance agenda, which is how a company makes money, and a marketplace agenda, which is their interaction with customers, and the operations agenda, which is how they make their product. The human agenda, or the human strategy, is everything around leadership and culture and how the organization works from a human side, and that's really our area of expertise. What was your uh, PhD thesis on? <laughs> it was on support systems in teenagers. And so support, support systems, systems with adolescents. Okay. And uh, that's it's a funny question because um, I was treating a young boy, five years old, and we were playing shoots and ladders because I was a child clinical psychologist. Uh -huh. And he started beating me. And I noticed that I started competing with him. And I said, <laughs> I've got to get out of this business. I'm in the wrong profession. And I went to a headhunter. I didn't have any money at the time. 
And he said, well, take me out to lunch. And I said, sure. And so I, I went to lunch with him and he talked and he said something that was very, very inspirational to me. He says, why don't you do what you were trained to do? Just stand up. And it was like a light bulb went on that I had some understanding of behavioral science and human development and relationships. So if I took it out on the street and began to help organizations, maybe I could make a living for myself. And that's really what I started. I then went and worked with the business roundtable, looking at how large companies manage and mismanage the human capital side of business. I got a six-year grant from the MacArthur Foundation to study leadership and then eventually started Healthy Companies International. And the focus has been primarily on trying to understand how great leaders build great companies and then to bring that knowledge back into business. So you were one of the genius grants within MacArthur? No, it was another pot of money, okay. but uh, actually it was more money, which was better, <laughs> but I'm, I don't think I'm a genius. It's <laughs> all right. I always thought that that was a... Um, was like the Mensa Society. I think that those people have to live with that. It's a great gift. <laughs> it is a great gift for a long time. Um, what was the What was the issue around when you started out, and then you your imprint uh, onto business uh, from your clinical training and the, the book? Obviously, the catalyst uh, that we, you have written with your uh, co-authors, how you become an extraordinary growth leader. But take us, uh, I think, of of interest. Um, back to the transition from dealing with adolescents where, where your training was to, um, to the corporate mind. Right. Well, I was very interested in how uh, individuals spend so much of their time inside organizations. And organizations can support and liberate their development and their productivity in life or they can shut people down, they can sabotage them, they can undermine their best interests. And so I was interested in the relationship between people and organizations, and could it be possible that they could work together for common good in a win-win relationship? And that's really where I started to think about what is a healthy company. And I wrote a book called The Healthy Company, which was really about that was really behavior. First that book. was my first book. First, first book after your thesis. After my thesis on adolescence. <laughs> you didn't, have to, defend, you didn't have to defend it except to your editor, perhaps. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, but that really was a stage in my life where I was very interested in the psychological intelligence of people, workers, and organizations. It became clear very quickly that if we wanted to build healthy companies, we had to get the question of leadership right. Because leaders either shed light or cast darkness or shadows on their organizations. Mm -hmm. And that's what attracted the MacArthur Foundation to some of our work. And we, for six years, ran a project with academics and corporations and unions to look at the whole question of leadership and the building of healthy, high-performance companies. Now, let me ask you, in what era was that? Was that in the 90s? It was in the 90s, exactly. Given where we are now, how would you, looking back on the impact of the economy in the 90s on that study? Well, I think that we have been on a 20-year transformation in this country, recognizing more and more the value of people and human capital to the development of successful businesses. Um, the growth of the knowledge economy, uh, the importance of teams, the importance of creativity and innovation. Uh, we've come to recognize that people's minds and hearts and the relationships that people bring to work is really the major strategic asset of a corporation. And, and, and just to interject, also the subject of far more research in the 90s as this became 
a focus. Absolutely, absolutely. A lot more research, a lot more recognition. Uh, the, both the cost of human capital and the value of the human asset in organizations. As a result of that, it required a different set of leadership capabilities among people running companies. They had to become more emotionally intelligent, more self-aware, more knowledgeable of the human organizations that they were running. And so what you saw over a 20-year period is the Stephen Coveys, the Dan Goldmans of emotional intelligence, the increasing recognition of the value of people and the importance of emotionally intelligent leaders running healthy companies. Why? What was the paradigm shift in which emotional intelligence, these kinds of soft issues, if you will, the soft issues of leadership, why did they come to the surface? A couple reasons. One is that companies increasingly spent larger amounts of their budgets on human capital, on labor. And so when the human capital, the people, were not working to capacity, uh, it costs a lot of money. And secondly is that the companies that had the best ideas, who could work together, where people were engaged and motivated, would outperform their competitors. So both on the cost side and on the asset side of the equation, the human element became more and more important to be successful in a business. And I guess it transitioned uh, the return on investment, now such a buzzword, if you will, human capital became an investment, just like an investment in plant and machinery. Absolutely, absolutely, that's exactly what happened. And, and, and also you began to see that companies who showed up on the best companies to work for mm -hmm. list actually were competing and successfully against their uh, counterparts in the marketplace. And people were attracted to those companies. They stayed in those companies. They were more engaged and motivated. They had more ideas. And their companies outperformed. Give uh, uh, the, the folks here listening to McLaughlin at work and remind people that I'm speaking to Bob Rosen, the book, uh, The Catalyst, How You in CAPS can become an extraordinary growth leader, a number of things that uh, we need to discuss in there. Um, but give a, drop back to uh, your book about it, Just Enough Anxiety, because uh, it was an interesting thought process. We want to give the, the benefit of uh, your previous book while we slide into The Catalyst. Right, well I first wrote The Healthy Company, right. and then I wrote a book called Leading People, which was on leadership. And uh, then I wrote a book on global leadership. I got very interested in whether American leadership was transferable around the world and went around and interviewed CEOs in about 40 countries. And that became a book about global leadership. And when did that come out? That came out in 2001. Simon okay. & Schuster published that. Mm -hmm. It was called Global Literacies. Uh, Just Enough Anxiety was a book that grew out of much of our research at Healthy Companies has been spent interviewing CEOs. We've now done about 300 CEO interviews in about 40 countries. We try to do one a month somewhere around the world, and that has been the foundation of our knowledge. And it became clear to me in the interviews that one of the great challenges of leaders was leading in an uncertain world that change leadership was becoming more and more important to running a successful business. And I remember an interview I did with the CEO of Ericsson in Stockholm, Sweden, and he said to me, one of the great challenges of leaders today is to create healthy anxiety with a destination. And that always resonated with me. And I started talking to CEOs about this importance of anxiety. 
And what I heard was that the very best were using anxiety as a positive and a powerful force inside themselves and inside their organizations. Uh, one of the great examples is Alan Mulally at Ford Motor Company. If you talk to Alan, he will say that his job is to create just the right amount of anxiety, tension in that company, not too little, which is the face of complacency, and not too much, which is the face of chaos. And his job is to turn up and turn down the heat in the organization, particularly when a company is facing change, which is basically all the time. And continually, uh, in, in that, that pendulum, not only is it moving more quickly, the arc is different, and there are various overlays that I think people had not anticipated before, the, glo the global economy. Yeah, I mean, uncertainty economy. is the new norm. It's not going away. And uh, I think one of the new major capabilities, competencies that companies have to develop is this uncertainty management, this ability to navigate a company through continuous, disruptive, uncertain change. And so the question is, what's the skill to do that? And I believe it's uh, just enough anxiety. It's all about managing the emotional side of change. The advantage of, uh, of having a microphone at McLaughlin at work is we can we try and ask questions that people would like to know about. There's uh, been a lot of discussion here on, on the program with, with, various, uh, with various authors and, and business leaders like, uh, like Bob Rosen. Is the current cadre of managers having come out of the last 20 years and now uncertainty being more pronounced than ever? Uh, are they equipped to deal with this, or are we going to have to wait for uh, a new uh, a new cohort to come forward? That this just too much legacy thinking, too much of the way we were. As much as they may want to change at age 40, 45, 50, they've had 20 years of a great run, uh, and now the world is, if not actually figuratively, upside down. Well, I'm a firm believer that uh, every morning we get, wake up is the first day of the rest of our lives and so people can fundamentally change and make choices if they want to. Having said that, um, as the global recession lifts, I do believe that leaders are going to have to develop three very important capabilities to succeed, leaders at all levels. The first is change leadership and this is really all about living with and creating just enough anxiety inside themselves and their business. The second one is growth leadership, and that's really what this current book is about. Mm -hmm. It's really how do you become a growth leader? How do you unleash the growth mindset inside yourself and inside your business? And the third area is in people leadership. I think we're going to have to go back to the fundamentals of trust, fairness, honesty, communication, building relationships. Uh, a lot of the covenants between institutions and people are being frayed right now because of uh, what's happened with some companies abusing their power, abusing their role, companies going under the level of stress and anxiety in the workplace. And so I think those three, change, growth, and people leadership, are going to be central to the next generation of leaders. And this book, The Catalyst, um, as I was skipping around in it, as is my want, uh, it, it's an interesting sized book. We'll show pictures of it, but it's it's a it's law it's lo it's it's more narrow than some. Uh, it, it, that in itself is a uh, is a change, perhaps, from your previous books. 
But I noticed at the end, um, in, a, in, in what is a postscript, you address the, um, the issue of, this, of the CEO. And yet, the book is really about helping people who are under that level sort of um, get the most out of their people and learn how to become leaders. Uh, address how you put that together and why. Well, one of the things that we were very interested in <clears throat> is how do you grow a business organically? Uh, because much of the research on mergers... What does that mean? Well, a l there are two kinds of growth. One is mergers and acquisitions growth, where you buy a company or you combine with another company. And the second type of growth is that you grow something from the inside out. You create something new from inside the walls of your corporation. And we were very interested in organic growth because uh, many of the mergers and acquisitions fail to produce the value add that they intend to. Uh, and increasingly, companies are going to be focused on, they'll, they'll continue to do mergers and acquisitions, but there's a lot of emphasis on growing the business from the inside out. So we were very interested in learning from successful growth leaders, growth managers who are growing organically. Secondly is that much of the literature on growth focuses on one of two things. It focuses on disruptive, uh, major discontinuous business model changing growth, uh, the Clayton Christensen uh, Harvard Business School kind of uh, innovation, or it involves very incremental growth. We think that growth leaders are doing something in the middle. They're turbocharging their companies. Uh, accelerating, I think, was a word that you Accelerate, had. Uh, accelerating used. growth. Um, another issue is that we, we believed, hypothesized, and we certainly f confirmed in the study, that many organizations, although they aspire to grow, their cultures, their systems, their structures, their management gets in the way, undermines, sabotages growth. And so we wanted to know how these growth leaders inside the belly of large, mature companies were growing their businesses almost despite their companies. And so we went out and we interviewed 50 growth leaders from large companies like Hewlett Packard and IBM and General Electric and uh, UPS and others. And had you pre-selected them or after you had done more than 50 had you studied them to create a profile that then you wanted to explore, or did you interview them anyway and then call out to pick out the 50 yeah, you wanted? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, we, first of all, this was, this was uh, championed by the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business and their Batten Institute. And, uh, and what we did was we sent out an email and asked for nominations in their alumni network of managers who were mastering growth inside their businesses. And we honed that list down to and identified through a series of criteria the, the top 50. And then we identified a core group of 30 that we actually interviewed. Uh, we did either face-to-face -face or phone interviews with these leaders. Uh, we and the time frame for this? When you were do actually conducting the interviews? About two years ago. Okay. And uh, we also uh, introduced some uh, psychological tests. We gave all of them a DISC, which is a personality behavioral inventory. Uh, so we learned a little bit about their personalities. We also interviewed... Now, was that a... Um 
Was that a commercial product, or is that yes, something it's that a commercial came out of product? Healthy? No, it's Can a you share with us the, what, what that test was? Well, it's a test that measures behavioral preferences, and the DISC represents four specific behavioral preferences that people have, and they have some combination of those four. The first one is dominance. These are people who are active, problem solvers, decisive, make things happen kind of people. Mm -hmm. You have the I, which are the influencers. These are people who uh, influence people by the power of their personality. Uh, they're great at building relationships. Then you have the S, which is steadfastness. These are people who work hard, are great team players. And then you have the conscientious people who are very analytical, uh, very quick to attention to detail and the like. And we wanted to compare these growth leaders to uh, national and international samples of general managers. And what we found out is that their psychological profile was very different. They were high D, high I, very dominant, shaped their environment, very active problem solvers, decisive, made things happen. And they were also very influential. They, they use the power of relationships. So they were very high D and high I and very low on steadfastness and conscientiousness. So their personalities were quite different than general managers. Hmm. Now, I'm always interested when people in your position obviously learned with a background to determine these. Did you, is that a test that you came upon? Um, there must be, there are a lot of these kinds of tests of how people are naturally and how they adapt versus their nature versus nurture. What, is this a test that you have found to be particularly predictive? It's, it's an, it's, it's ver first of all, it's, it's widely used, okay. widely researched, um, has been inside many, many corporations, thousands of corporations, okay. and we felt was the best, <coughs> excuse me, the best uh, vehicle to assess personality preference. Now, just staying on this point for a second, one of the things that was very clear among these growth leaders is that they had a very different psychology. I'd like to talk about that for a second. Please. Um, these were folks who were very comfortable with change and uncertainty. They were passionate at learning all the time, and they were great at shaping their environment. So they developed themselves through a process that... Um, that we called in the book developing a growth mindset. It, and, and they were also in an era in which they had enjoyed this. Did this a couple of years ago, so call it 2007. They had been on a long run to become leaders during a period of virtually unprecedented growth. It's who they were. They were wired for growth and opportunity as people. And it raises a question that we can come back to about what happens if you're not. Right. Okay. And because we did conclude that growth leadership can be learned and it has to do with changing people's mindsets and giving them tools to help them become better growth leaders. But going back to, to the growth mindset, uh, a couple things. First off is that these were folks who were very, very quick to lean into life. They saw the world as a place that they could learn and they had confidence in themselves that they could shape their environment. So they actively and aggressively went after new experiences. They uh, learn different areas of expertise. 
they took on different jobs. They were in sales and marketing and accounting and human resources and operations, and they moved around the organization. Many of them moved across lines of business or across companies to get different kinds of experience. So they had this passion for learning, this comfort with uncertainty, they had a diverse set of experiences, and the effect of that is that it broadened their repertoire of skills and perspectives inside their heads. Had they also um, excelled and failed? Oh, absolutely, they had a very different perspective about failing. They mm. didn't see falling down as a failure. They saw it as a mistake and a learning opportunity rather than a failure. Now you contrast, so in a sense, they saw life as a journey. Contrast that to a person who has a fixed mindset. They see life as a test. They see it, just wanna, they see, they have a, a strong desire for stability and predictability. Uh, they're, they're fearful of looking stupid to themselves or other people. They don't Which see is more important, to themselves or other people? Looking oh, stupid. definitely to, the, to themselves first. Because they have their own people. standard. Exactly, but yeah. both. Both are important. Right. The, the bottom line is that it limits their ability and willingness to take risks, to seek out new experiences. They end up developing a much more narrow repertoire of skills, and so therefore when opportunities show up, they lean away from them rather than toward them. So there's a fundamental difference between having a growth mindset and having a fixed mindset. And they may not recognize opportunity. No, they don't. They don't see it at all. I'll give you an example. Uh, we love stories. Yeah. The Aaron McLaughlin at work, stories is all about it. I should point out before his, just his voice goes along, speaking to uh, Bob Rosen, the book, The Catalyst, how you can become an extraordinary growth leader. Uh, growth is obviously a, a, has been a factor in the economy for, for years, and now it's being explored. Uh, growth also, I want to uh, highlight our sponsor here on McLaughlin at Work, uh, Classroom 24-7, web learning uh, and certi certification uh, training. Uh, click there at the bottom of your screen. You can learn more about them and what they do if you're in the business of uh, distance learning web in this web world, Classroom 24-7 is a good place to start for your corporate endeavors. Bob Rosen. So I'll give you an example. Uh, we uh, interviewed uh, a gentleman by the name of John Howe. John was hired from the outside to be the president of Mars Retail Group. He was hired to resuscitate and revitalize a business that wasn't go doing very well. It was their eth Ethel's Chocolate Candy business. Um, one of the interesting things about selling chocolate are there are two days when chocolate is sold, Valentine's Day and Christmas. It's not really a growth business. You can improve your quality and try to go up against Godiva, or you can try to get more distribution of chocolate, but then you reach a certain limit. There's only so much cocoa that you can put in there. Exactly. You can change your percentages, but you can't go over 100. Exactly. So he, he walked into the company, and he started asking questions about the business, he realized that the business model was fundamentally flawed in terms of growing the business. But you don't really understand what he did until you understand the man. This is a guy who was uh, working in marketing and sales at General Foods. He got an MBA at INSEAD. 
He worked at Carlson. For those Travel. who may not recognize NCAD, it's in France. In France. Yeah. It's the large, very reputable business school in France. Mm -hmm. He worked at Club Med, at Payless Shoes, and at Universal Studios. So he brought all of that job experience to this business challenge of how to build a chocolate business in a new kind of way. So what he immediately did was... And where did he come from immediately before that position? You know, I don't remember that. Okay. I don't, I don't remember that. Um, did he like chocolate? I assume he did. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't tell us that he didn't. <laughs> Just like the people in the hotels who put the chocolates on the pillows. I guess they can get pretty tired of it. We'll, we'll assume he had a taste for chocolate. Exactly. Uh, so what he did was he said, you know, maybe we need to borrow some models from Starbucks, from Panera Bread, and to try out some new concepts. And so he came up with this idea of creating a chocolate lounge, like a Starbucks for chocolate, where people could come with friends to drink and eat chocolate. So he moved very, very fast and created a prototype in Chicago, and he took it out to customers and he started to test the concept. And this was very, this is very consistent with the other growth leaders, is that speed was more important than knowledge. They moved very, very quickly by testing ideas in partnership with customers. They created prototypes. They saw their businesses as hypotheses. They would take half-baked ideas out to customers and involve them in the development of the product. They, create, they, had, they, they uh, created what they called small bets, where they would take them out into the marketplace, test them, conduct learning launches, bring it back. And one of the characteristics of great growth leaders is that when the business wasn't, when they weren't getting the feedback that they wanted, they called the baby ugly and they put the business to bed and tried something else. Cut your losses. Cut your losses. In fact, they had a concept called affordable loss. They were only willing to invest as much as they were willing to lose. And it's a concept that entrepreneurs use very successfully in the marketplace. And these growth leaders operated very much like entrepreneurs. What was Churchill's comment that you can only you only learn the game if you uh, play for more than you can afford to lose? <laughs> yeah. So a variation on the theme. Yeah, yeah. So 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 what you had is you had John Howe who brought these diverse experiences, a broad repertoire, an ability to listen, uh, a, a, an intense bias for action, uh, an, an interest in testing things in the marketplace. He found a model that worked. He grew several lounges in Chicago and then was able to grow the business in Las Vegas and other places. So I think that's a really good example of one of the growth leaders that mastered one of the critical competencies, which was develop a growth mindset. And be able to, in terms of leadership, be able to uh, in, instill in other people that same approach. Well, that's another, that's another aspect of uh, the growth leader, which I think is very important. And that is that they, they built teams, because they were all very team oriented, mm -hmm. but they built teams, high performance teams on steroids. So, because I was very, we were very, what does that mean? We were very interested in whether uh, they led people differently. And in fact, they did. And I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. First off, 
is that they led with one of the chapters in the book is called lead with pragmatic idealism right um, these were that's one actually that's uh, like number five because I remember I, I, I went to that when I saw it in the book and, and you might just take a minute to to show um, how your book was put together it's the catalyst but you you have five or six lessons and right, then the chapters exactly. come out right the first one is all about developing a growth mindset the second one and we can talk about each one of these oh. the second one is called the monkey isn't on your back it's uh, in your head the third one is it's already there uh, you just need to reframe it differently. The fourth one is small is beautiful. The fifth one is lead with pragmatic idealism. And then the last one is that speed thrills. So let me talk about... Pragmatic. Let's start with a pragmatic. That's where you were. I didn't yeah. want... But it, it's always good, I think, in people's mindsets to understand how your mind took you through this, this growth issue so that people, when they come into the book, can follow the same way that you had wanted it presented. Right, right. Well, you know, it, it is interesting um, uh, now that we're on that because I think it's, this is a very, very important point is that big companies tend to undermine growth and they do it in a couple ways. The first is that they demand high levels of analysis and data when new growth projects are being referred up the chain of command. However, the growth leaders are much more intuitive. They go into the marketplace realizing that you can't always predict the future from the past. You have to start small, be intuitive, learn from your customers. But companies require lots of analytic data to move a project forward. Secondly, is that companies love big payoffs. But our growth leaders said that most of their successes started small. And I'll come back to that because small bets really mattered. So this whole notion that many of our corporate cultures undermine these growth leaders and they have to operate in a bubble oftentimes. They leverage existing resources. They find networks inside their companies. They build teams on their own and they start small under the radar screen. So let me come back to this pragmatic idealism. One of the things that we learned is that these growth teams have different characteristics. These leaders have a kind of combination of a cold pragmatism, a no-nonsense management style, but a genuine idealism. They really believe that they can create something from scratch. However, they are no-nonsense. They ruthlessly hold people accountable, they demand A players on their teams. They are tough. If you are not performing, they change you out. Yet at the same time, they're some of the most passionate, caring, higher purpose leaders that you'll find. So they operate with this kind of paradox of intense accountability and also a really a soft touch in the way that they inspire people. So they, they, they really were high-performance teams on steroids in that sense. Uh, just to interject again, uh, the, the, the current day on uh, pragmatic idealism. Of the people that you were speaking to, uh, put your research together, the 50 that became 30, any of them come a cropper in, um, in 2008? Uh, we haven't done the analysis of that. It's a very interesting question. Um, uh, I can give you an example of 
a leader who is still in his job who really succeeded in this pragmatic idealism, one of our, one of our leaders that we interviewed. Um, his name is Arkady Coleman. Uh, he started ING Direct uh, in North America, in Canada. Uh, this is a Dutch company, ING Group. He started the that co company. People are used to the color orange. I right, exactly, exactly. Right. ING Direct, the color orange. And he said, wouldn't it be great if we could change the way we do banking? Why can't we take a couple simple online products, make them convenient for customers, use businesses like HBO and eBay and Amazon as our inspiration, apply technology and create a low-cost, high-value e-savings account? So this is a growth leader that actually led a business in North America to three and a half million customers and deposits exceeding $50 billion over a relatively short period of time, 10 years maybe. Uh, so how did he do it? He practiced pragmatic idealism. This is a guy who hired people with a history of achievement who were hungry to do more. Oftentimes, these were people who had a can-do spirit, but they had lost, they had failed somewhere in the marketplace. And he had a nose for hiring these people, a jazz musician, a ballet instructor, uh, a deli guy from New York, an ex-Marine uh, guy. He brought them into the company, and he gave them an opportunity. And he gave them an incredible, powerful, passionate goal, a big, hairy goal, pragmatic enough to know that he needed new kinds of skills, but idealistic enough to believe in people's ability to achieve new kinds of things. Then he set very, very clear performance expectations, and he demanded the highest from these people. Uh, and he had a very direct but very authentic approach. To me, he's a great example of a leader who has pragmatic idealism. Now, did, did he think about how he led? Would he have described his leadership style the same way as somebody who was studying him? Yeah, I think so. I think he would. Uh, he would and say. And where did he learn? How did it, we, how, talk about talking about how people arrive at that point? What were his uh, What were his steps along the way? Uh, I think he was a professor at one time. He was a banker, uh, clearly an independent uh, soul uh, inside a large corporation. Uh, but a perfect person to grow a major growth business inside of a large corporation. The Dutch in Amsterdam were very smart to put him in charge of this opportunity in North America. Mm -hmm. uh, he had the right personality at the right time, uh, combining retail and, and high technology to fundamentally change the way we do banking in this country. Were you to be a, a consultant or an advisor to ING in Amsterdam? Would you have suggested that they bring a native or a European in to do banking via Canada into New York? Or is there something about your research and, and the skills of the individual nature and nurture that make it appropriate? Well, I know ING pretty well because I, I, I was an advisor to the company for many years. Uh, the Dutch are, have been known for hundreds of years to be good global capitalists. Uh, they, they are cross-culturally literate. 
they, they have a sensitivity and appreciation for cultures other than uh, the Dutch culture. They've had to be because they, they had big aspirations to be a global power, but they were a small nation. And, and they were, uh, they were um, so they have a long legacy, a long history for, for doing that. Um, my sense is that uh, some of it was proactive and some of it is that they stumbled on it. Uh, I'm not sure that they knew how big that business was. Or could be. Or could be when they started. And oftentimes, uh, large corporations don't know how big these growth businesses could be. Uh, but they found the right person uh, to experiment, to conduct some learning launches, to try a new business model out. They started it in Canada, which was probably a good place to start it as an experiment. And when they realized how successful it could be, they rolled it into the United States. Now, given your research and the testing that you do, uh, for large businesses, do you, uh, are you a proponent of selecting, of ma senior management selecting opportunity based on, on testing, psychological testing? Okay, is that predictive? Um, in some cases it is, in some cases it isn't. I think the key is uh, to know what the business requires and putting the right person in the job with the right skill at the right time. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of doing multiple interviews across multiple people, particularly if you have a strong culture, because people understand what will work or not work in that culture. Um, having said that, the people have to be open uh, because you can have a very strong culture and reject uh, creative, free-thinking, experimental people that have behaviors that are inconsistent with your strong culture. And so if you have an open mind, uh, the more people that interview a, a prospective candidate, I believe the better. Speaking with Bob Rose and Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, your audio guide to the workplace, the book, The Catalyst, why was it entitled The Catalyst, and what is, what is the catalyst in this book? Well, catalysts, if you think of the chemical reaction of a catalyst. Um, did you name the book, or did the uh, publisher, Crown, decide? No, we, we did, actually. Okay. We did. Good for you. And you stuck with it. Yeah, we, we stuck <laughs> with it. And we, 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 we did because a catalytic reaction is that you introduce a particular chemical in a mix and something happens that otherwise would not happen if that chemical was not introduced. It becomes a catalytic reaction. And these growth leaders were catalysts. They made things happen. You dropped them into organizations, you dropped them into opportunities, and they created growth out of those opportunities. And that's why we called it the catalyst. I was going through, I mean, would you like me to go through some of these other yeah, lessons? I think so. I think they're, they're important ones. And I think the stories are always, I mean, th this is about, this basically, the book is about people. Yes. And the people who personified the lessons as opposed to the lessons being instructive about the people. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. The second lesson is that the money isn't on your back, it's in your head. and That's the monkey. The monkey. The monkey isn't on your back, yeah. it's in your head. And... Uh, the, the point here is that the growth leaders did not look up and rely on their corporate leaders to give them resources or necessarily support. They acted like entrepreneurs. They basically took the bull by the horn and said, 
I will find the resources, I will find the capabilities inside or outside the company, I will uh, gain early yeses from my customers, uh, I will co-create products with my customers as my partners, I will only invest what I'm willing to lose, and I will not ask for permission from my bosses, I will ask for forgiveness. And so these were leaders who said, the monkey is not on my back or above me, it's in my head, and I need to take the lead and act like an entrepreneur. Which leads to the third lesson, which was one of the most interesting ones, which is that the business opportunity is oftentimes right in front of the growth leader. It's what they have to do is to reframe to find it. And what I mean by that is that that was reframe reframe the opportunity okay it's they like, have it's to like repurposing things reframe the value proposition mm -hmm. so what they did was they went after existing customers or and they said what could we do differently with the products that we already have what could we do differently so let me give you a couple examples uh, at best buy Best Buy sent senior executives into the stores to talk to customers coming into the stores. And as they listened, they realized that their customers were different. Some worked at home, some worked in small businesses, some worked in large companies. And why couldn't they become technology specialists to solve the real problems of customers in addition to selling products? They reframed what they were delivering, not just a product, but a service. Another great example is Procter & Gamble. And I think um, because this is being done on GarageBand, I think that Apple uh, Computers is proof of that as well. Their Absolutely. whole genius bar set up that they help you with a service and that they're in constant communication with their uh, client base. They're not just trying to sell you a piece of equipment. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, one of the interesting things about uh, people with a fixed mindset is that they use the collection of data to learn about the customer. The growth leaders do it very differently. They see their customers as real people with real problems, and they go out and they talk to them. <laughs> they build relationships with these people, and they learn how they are bleeding and what they need. And you saw the growth leaders going out. I, I love this example. Um, Craig Wynette at Procter & Gamble. Procter & Gamble for years were selling mops. They reframed the mop into the Swiffer, a floor cleaning system. Suddenly they had a new product. We spend a lot of money on that. Yeah, suddenly <laughs> they had a new product, highly innovative. Now, Procter & Gamble is an interesting company because Craig succeeds because Alan Lafley, the CEO, has created an environment that really supports creativity and innovation. So there's some companies that are really out front on trying to create environments or cultures that nurture growth. Other companies are not doing that so well. Another example is Pfizer. Uh, Pfizer is in the Band-Aid business, the Listerine business. Uh, they produce all of these medicine cabinet products and the leader, the growth leader that we talked to, basically said, why don't we package those products into a traveling medic medicine chest? And they called the product uh, Mosaic, 
And suddenly they had a medicine chest, a miniature traveling medicine chest for the office, for the car, on the run. They bundled existing products. They reframed the value proposition uh, for the customer using existing resources, turning to existing customers, and leveraging those resources differently. The fourth lesson is small is beautiful. And this is really all about bucking the trend that you have to be big in order to be great. The growth leader said, you gotta start small. Conduct a small experiment. Small is beautiful. Place these small bets fast, have some quick wins, conduct a prototype, get out into the marketplace quickly, and then if it's not working, close it down and move on to the next product. Always and been intrigued by the notion of, of size, uh, having been involved in one of the roll-ups that became um, Citigroup uh, when I was with uh, Solomon Brothers. Uh, what what is your thought about growth? Doesn't growth? How do you how do you grow and stay small? We well, don't want to stay small forever, but sometimes staying small enables you to get the concept right. Uh, um, the demands for being big, right out of the box, or only funding potentially big ideas limits all of the hundreds of small innovations that may end up becoming big businesses. And growth leaders don't work that way. I mean, when they find a viable business, they're the first ones to tell you they need to th you need to throw lots of money and resources to that idea to grow that business as fast as possible. But small was better than not. And you know, this raises a very interesting question. In this current economy, Please address that. Many people believe that you can't grow. They believe that you can't do much. They get scared. They turn inward. Um, they don't feel empowered to take control and shape their environment. But the lessons from the growth leaders are pretty significant. They say, in fact, you can grow. You just have to be comfortable with uncertainty. Two is you don't have to take a big bite you can take a small bite. You don't need necessarily big resources. Use existing resources and capabilities and go out and have a conversation with a customer and together figure out what the customer needs. And as a result, conduct a small launch, experiment, and try something new. So there are great lessons in this book for how to be successful managers in tough times. Did you see 2008 coming? Yes and no. Um, at some level, it was clear that we were building a house of cards. Um, both executive salaries, um, uh, the bond market, uh, the derivatives, and the like. And you can't succeed forever. Just like in life, life, one of the great principles of Buddhism is that life is about pleasure and it's about suffering. And the faster we accept both, the better off we will be because that's the truth. And it's the same in business. Business has ups and business has downs. And we had a pretty significant uh, growth period. Uh, 
Uh, sometimes our best lessons come from when we're bleeding, when we fall down. And that's certainly going on in this country uh, as we rethink our priorities and uh, the investments that we make in education and healthcare. And I believe that businesses are going through the same conversations now. So um, I think it's horrible that people are losing their jobs. I think it's horrible that people have lost lots of money in the stock market in their pensions. I think it's horrible that the stock price of companies has gone down. But they're great lessons to be learned if we turn a light inside ourselves and inside our businesses and look at uh, what we did right and what we did wrong. So coming back to your point about the, the lessons in the book about how people can uh, achieve or, or be become extraordinary growth leaders. What is the difference, and if you said this, please repeat yourself, what is the difference between what is happening, what a growth leader has to do now, and what they had to do in 2006 and seven? I think more people have to act like growth leaders in the book uh, in order to succeed. Uh, they have to be comfortable uh, with uncertainty. They have to take responsibility for their own life and their own career. Um, they have to use existing resources that they have because there is less money available uh, to grow businesses. Uh, they have to be creative in leveraging existing capabilities on their teams and inside their organizations. Uh, they have to start slow, uh, take small steps, uh, and, and build good relationships with customers. And that's what the growth leaders did. And I, I think increasingly managers across all business has to do more of what they did in order to be successful in this current environment. From the information that you have, from the research you've done, is it possible that there are, is there a finite group of leaders in the economy? <laughs> it's sort of, you know, we talk about leaders, but they have to be followers. Uh, in your experience over the last 20 years, is there reason to believe that there can be more leaders now that you can pick up a book, if you will? Bob Rosen's book, uh, The Catalyst, How You Can Become an Extraordinary Growth Leader. Is there room for more leaders now? Well, it depends on how you define leadership. Um, um, my, my, my attitude about this is that companies need to create uh, thousands of leaders. Everyone is the CEO of their own job, uh, their own team, their own office, uh, their own workspace. Uh, they, they need to inspire others, they need to work collaboratively with other people, they need to take responsibility, they need to be accountable, they need to own the job. And so I believe that leadership needs to be, the concept needs to be shared, needs to be distributed, and we need to create cultures of leaders. And the very best companies get this. Uh, I recall one CEO said to me uh, when I asked him, uh, what is the most important job of a leader? And he said, it's to create other leaders. And that really resonated with me. So uh, I believe that um, the recession is going to put a light back on the fundamentals of leadership around leading change, leading growth, leading people, as I said earlier in this conversation. And, and my experience is that companies have not made the investments that they need to make in these three core competencies to accelerate out of this recession 
uh, as the smoke dissipates and the opportunities start to arise. Good summary. Is the smoke dissipating? I think it's slowly dissipating. I mean, one of the interesting things about great companies is that they do three things simultaneously. They do everything they can to survive, which is managing their costs and scrutinizing their budgets. They are rethinking their business models, and they're putting their foot on the pedal of growth and expansion. And some companies can't afford to do growth or business model revamping because they're suffocating and they need to lay off people and reduce operating costs. But most great companies are doing all three of these at the same time. Um, and so, yeah, I think we're moving in the right direction. That's a positive note. A positive note to end with, uh, speaking with Bob Rosen, chairman and CEO of Healthy Companies International. He's an internationally recognized psychologist and business advisor joining us here today in McLaughlin at Work, his book, along with his co-authors, uh, Gene Ledke and Robert Wiltbank, uh, The Catalyst, How You Can Become an Extraordinary Growth Leader. When did the book come out? The book just came out a couple weeks ago, and I must say it was a real treat working with Gene and, and Rob Wilbank. Uh, Gene is a, a press professor of strategy at the Darden School. Rob is a venture capitalist and a professor at Willamette College University in Oregon. And... Uh, uh, what we learned as, as a team of three is that growth happens at the intersection of strategy, leadership, and entrepreneurship. And we each brought that perspective, strategy, leadership, and entrepreneurship to the table. And we learned a great deal, and we became a growth team in the process. Would you prefer to write a book with others? Uh, that's a very interesting question. Um, it has its sets of advantages and disadvantages. Uh, this one was perfect. I, I had a wonderful time. I, um, I'm working on a new book now on, uh, on the, the psychology of people and what enables people to live uh, happy, fulfilled lives and achieve their highest potential. It's less of a business book and more of a book for the masses, but uh, I've been very interested in high potential people and and what 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 makes people happy and productive in life. And so uh, maybe we'll talk again. That'll be great. It's certainly a good time to be testing that because yes. uh, people's happiness with life is uh, is something that's under the microscope right now. Bob Rosen, thank you very much for joining me. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, your audio guide to the workplace. Interesting and compelling discussion about how you can become an extraordinary growth leader. Bob, thanks so much. My pleasure. And next week on McLaughlin Network, uh, the Carrot Principle with our good friend Chester Elton. We'll be back with Chester's re-release of the Carrot Principle, how the best managers use recognition to engage their people, retain talent, and accelerate performance. Based on a 10-year study of 200,000 managers and employees and updated with powerful new results from a major global study, you will want to listen to... Chester Elton with me, Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, your audio guide to the workplace, getting it all for you in terms of management, leadership, and employment in the workplace. You hear it here like you hear it no other place. McLaughlin at Work. Later next week.